Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 13. We'll be in the latter half of that book today, Revelation, chapter 13. I am going to ask you to stay seated for a few moments. I'm going to do an introduction, um, and then I will get into the latter part of our text. We'll be in verses 11 through 18 this morning. But last week, uh, we were introduced in our text to a central um, character of the apocalypse, a figure whose name, or we know him by Antichrist. In the text specifically, he is referred to as the dragon, also known as the beast. And as we shall see uh, by the end of our time to today, that he will also be associated with a very unique alphanumerical code called 666. The Antichrist's ascension to power will occur just preceding and or during the initial days of a time period that we call the Tribulation, really culminating the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. This is seven years of yet-to-be-lived Jewish time. It's the last years of human history, really as we understand it, before we would be ushered in to the millennial reign. The tribulation is a time of judgment from God on a fallen world that has long rejected His offer of grace. God's judgment during this time will grow in severity over the seven years, and to the latter part will be a time of utter decimation and destruction um, before the Lord in a second advent will come. The time preceding the tribulation will be tumultuous times. They will be a time of in human history where there will be great turmoil. The church will have been raptured, perilous times will come, and the beginning of sorrows or the birth pangs of the judgment of God will begin to fall upon the earth. Earth dwellers will be looking for answers to the political, the social, the economic plight of the day during these perilous times. The Antichrist, a man full of natural potential, but also possessed with the supernatural power of the devil, will assert himself politically and socially, and he will present himself, as Daniel describes, wondrously in personality and in solution, and humanity will be enamored by him. In short order, he will unite the world's governments into a singular world order, and he will set up... <coughs> A really a false trinity where Satan is head, the Antichrist playing the part of Christ. And then a character will be introduced today, the false prophet will be one who speaks of the Antichrist. Really everything about the devil, and especially chapter 13, is a parody. By that I mean it's a copycat of the kingdom of God. As Antichrist's grip grows tighter on the world, the Antichrist will abandon his deceptions and break his truce with Israel, which he will made for seven years. And in the midst of that, he will break that treaty, go to the then erected temple. He will do some abominable act called the abomination of desolation. He will declare himself the world's God, and he will demand loyalty and fealty to him under the penalty of death if refused. He will destroy all other religions, and he will begin to truly identify himself as the Savior of the world. Those who might convert to Christianity during this time will most likely pay for that decision 
with their lives. We concluded our text last week with verse number 10, and you can look there with me. It says, He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killed with the sword must be killed with the sword. And here is the patience and the faith of the saints. The idea is this, is that you and I can't always stop the inevitable, but we can endure it with honor and faith. Um, I, I can say it this way, you and I are to die with courage and faith. And that is the admonition, that is the encouragement Jesus provides for these tribulational period saints, to die with courage. This morning we'll be introduced into another apocalyptic character known as the false prophet. He will be the religious arm of the Antichrist reign. He too will be a satanically, demonically possessed individual who will cause people to worship the beast. So let me ask you to stand as we read our text this morning in honor of God's Word. We'll read from verse 11 to the end. A fascinating text, but as always we will work and endeavor to make personal application in our lives at the end. Revelation chapter 13, verse number 11, John writing of yet another vision he receives. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exercised all the power of the first beast before him, and he causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doth great wonders, so that he maketh fire to come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast, a statue, which had the wound by the sword and did live. And speaking of the false prophet, and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and caused that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell, save that he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count, the word means calculate, the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, threescore, and six. Our Heavenly Father, I pray the next few moments as we look into your word, and Lord, seek to understand, Lord, that which we can. Lord, I pray you'd help us, Lord, to have um, not just fascination, but Lord, response as Peter said, what manner of men ought we to be, or knowing that this end is coming, that the time is short, that our opportunity for evangelism, Lord, grows dim. Lord, knowing that this judgment has befallen the earth, Lord, how soberly should we live today? And so, Lord, I, I pray you to help us with those kinds of applications, and I ask in Jesus' precious name, amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for standing. 
As we have discussed a number of times, the major causation and tool of Satan is his deceptive qualities. As the Bible tells us, the devil or the Satan is the father, the originator, the initiator of lies. His lies began in his own heart when he believed a lie that he told himself. And it's recorded for us in Isaiah chapter 14 that he believed that he could ascend into heaven, that he could usurp the power of God, that he could uh, cause some of the angelic followers to come with him and usurp the reign of God. Lucifer at that time was the grandest of all the creatures that God had made. An archangel, a seraphim, he praised the Lord and he reflected the Shekinah glory of our God. And he did so until, until sin was found in him. And that sin was the lie that he believed in his own heart as he considered his own grandeur and beauty, which, by the way, had to be spectacular, but it caused him to have pride and to sin. He believed that he could become greater than God. And in so doing, Lucifer became the Satan, meaning the adversary of God and his people. He was thrown out of heaven after this initial rebellion. He would be thrown out, as we've already learned, a second time uh, during this tribulation period. And now the war with God somewhat lost, he began his war against humanity. And he began to tell his lies. He did so to Adam and Eve, and they succumbed to those. And of course, now we are all born in sin as Adam fell. Satan has long deceived unbelievers of our world by hiding and shielding the truth of the gospel from their hearts, by filling their hearts with pride and self-sufficiency, with religion and false promises. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 says this, For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light, meaning that Satan often comes to humanity presenting himself as a good, perhaps a religion, some noble cause, but it does not honor the God of heaven, and it leads men in time to destruction and perdition. His purpose is to confuse by just nuancing away from the truth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, we are told that the God of this world hath blinded, meaning deceived, the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine on them. And so Satan tells lies that people will maybe believe in sincerity or believe in good works or buy into religion. And as I have long said, Christianity has nothing to do with religion. Christianity is about a relationship with God through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His provision on the cross. Religion has led more people to hell than anything in this world. Since the inception of Satan's rebellion... Satan has long recruited and utilized others, many false prophets, uh, throughout his reign. Today, during the time of Christ and in the tribulation, the Bible tells us over and over and warns of many false prophets. Back in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 13 and, and, and all through the Jeremiah, in, in many places in the Old Testament, the people were warned about false prophets and how to test them. And the false prophets weren't necessarily here to be spoken of, of idolaters and, and, and those who claim no allegiance to Jehovah, but rather people who claim allegiance to God, but deceived the people 
by not presenting God correctly or the means to Him. Deuteronomy 13, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, Matthew 24, 11, Mark 13, 27, Matthew 7, 5, 2 Peter 2, 1, all warn God's people about not following the deceptive practices of false prophets. One specific text, Matthew 24, 11, Jesus Himself says this, And many false prophets shall arise, and shall de- deceive many. And of course, this, these words are spoken in the context of the tribulation. So he's speaking to the tribulation saints and saying, many, many, many false prophets will arise. Make sure you are able to distinguish that which is true from that which is error. He goes on to say that if any man shall say to you, lo, here is Christ, or, or lo, he is there, believe it not. For there shall be false Christs, people who call themselves Christians, perhaps, that are not. And he says, matter of fact, they will be so convincing. It says this, and they shall have and show signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. And then he concludes with this, behold, I have told you. It's a word of warning. Understand that in our Christian journey that people are going to pop up that present themselves as the purveyors of the truth, but they are not. And it's going to require some discernment on our part to know what is truth and what is false. And that is true even today. First and chief of all the false prophets who've ever lived, going all the way back to Balaam, uh, to the false prophets of the New Testament, the chief among them all will be the character of our text that we call the false prophet that will arise during the days of the Great Tribulation. He will rise with the ascension of the Antichrist. And Revelation chapter 13 tells us, we'll begin to look at our text now, verse 11, that he'll be another. In other words, John says, I saw another, or the word means another in kind in the Greek, one like this. So it's not referencing some political system or some religious system or some philosophy or idea. Just as the Antichrist is a real person, so too will be this second beast that John sees arising not out of the sea or the abyss like the Antichrist does, but out of the earth from among humanity, from something that is known to present himself during this time. Is known as another beast or a creature. This is the idea here is that he has a, he's a man yet is demonically possessed. He rises out of the earth, meaning he has some human origin, perhaps even historic in nature. The two horns here are referenced in Daniel, but don't necessarily tie in exactly. I think the better idea is this, just as the beast, Antichrist, had seven, this is a, a creature who is subservient to the Antichrist, yet serves him. And he has two horns, which would be similar, as the Bible tells us, to a sheep or a lamb. But the truth is, he speaks to the tongue of the devil. In other words, his appearance, this is important to humanity, will appear at first gentle. Like the Antichrist, he will endure endure himself to the populace. He will speak kind words. And, And by the way, that will be in contrast to the message that the Lord is sending of judgment and repentance during the days of tribulation. And this is going to be subtle. This is going to be full of deceit. This is a religious man saying things that people are going to want to hear in the difficult moments of life. Some have speculated the second beast will rise out of one of the earth's present religions. Specifically, something that may call itself Christian at the time, but is not. 
His voice will be deceptive, but make no mistake, it will be satanic. Verse 12, we learned that his authority comes from Satan, but is obviously delegated by the Antichrist himself as he is subservient and points people to the Antichrist. Um, his purpose is to use religion to unite and to point humanity to its new Savior. This is all parody of Christ. To its new Savior, to its new deliverer, to the one who can save them out of the decimation that is the tribulation, this false prophet points to the Antichrist. And this false prophet will use religious exercise and he may even play some role. We studied last week how this Antichrist at some point will receive a wound to one of his heads. Many think this is some form of maybe assassination. Maybe it's a great ploy. Maybe it's real. But he'll appear to be dead. But he will rise again, which will give kind of a credibility to the world. Some speculate the false prophet in his religious role may play some part in this grand deception, which again is a parody of Christ dying and rising again. Everything about the devil and his plan is artificial, fake, and phony. Verse 13, he will mimic the miracles of God. Remember that the tribulation will be full of spectacular wonders and signs from heaven. Fire will come down, meteors, wormwood. We've gone through all these things. The two witnesses will be there. I believe Elijah and Moses, they'll be performing miracles. And so too will this false prophet. Um, he will be in, if you will, a kind of competition that may seem for a time to usurp the other miracles of the world. His message most likely won't be about judgment and repentance, which men have never liked that message, but it'll probably be about peace and loyalty, fealty to the beast, the Savior, who seems to be in control of the world. In verse 14, his wonders will be so amazing as they are attached to his message, that the lost world will rally around the false prophet and the false savior, the Antichrist. Verses 14 and 15 describe an event that is quite extraordinary, occurring probably at the zenith, at the height of the Antichrist rule, um, at, at, at the ministry, false ministry, the false prophet. This is very similar to the events that we find in the book of Daniel. By the way, Daniel, uh, there's so, so much literature there that parallels as we've gone back and forth. We did extensively last week of uh, this, that in the day that Daniel lived, there was another man that the Bible refers to and called the beast, a precursor to the Antichrist, and his name was Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar will be, was full of pride and false glory, and he caused a great statue to be erected in Daniel's day. And there came this kind of watershed crisis moment when all the world then, all those in Babylon were instructed to come to this image of the beast, the image of Nebuchadnezzar. And when harps and music was played, they were to bow down to show loyalty, to fealty to the beast. And any that did not to that image were to be thrown into the fiery furnace, as we know the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, but in that fiery furnace, God miraculously delivered them. In the tribulation, something quite similar will happen. The false prophet 
as he directs the world to pay homage to the Antichrist, who's probably been, you know, he's had this miraculous wound healed. He's he maybe already gone through the abomination of desolation, called himself God. The world will be called now to bow down before and worship him. And there'll be the same penalty for those who refuse to do so. Those who refuse to bow down will forfeit their lives and they will be pursued until they are killed. And to encourage and inspire um, the delusion, the deception that is rampant according to 2 Thessalonians in this tribulation period, um, this other miracle occurs. And the Bible specifically says, now you understand this is granted by God. Everything that happens, anything the Antichrist does, anything the false prophet does, in the end, God's in control of all this, okay? He allows what He allows. But the Scripture specifically says that He has or has given the power to grant life to the image. The word there, pneuma, in the Greek means just that. It means to breathe. It means to animate. It means to move. We have a statue, a giant obelisk that speaks and it moves. Um, by the way, Hollywood and science fiction have been pre preparing us for, for this stuff for, you know, years. And those in that moment who refuse to acknowledge, which will be something incredible, wonderful, and, you know, in their minds spectacular, it's a watershed moment, just like it was for Nebuchadnezzar's day. Those who won't will forfeit their lives. Now, this idea of this um, statue coming to life is rooted in an ancient pagan practice that many other false prophets and religions have practiced throughout the centuries. It's called theurgy. Theurgy. And theurgy is an ancient practice of magic and of sorcery that uses incantation and ritual we might understand it as something akin to seance that is used to evoke the spirit world to animate stone and wood and or idols. Now, you with me? And so, I tend to interpret this quite literally, not metaphorically, and this text is presented literally, not metaphorically, as other places in Revelation. And there's this practice that this false prophet will have perfected that will allow this image to be animated, to cause them to speak. False religions often had, I've used the word oracle a lot on Wednesday nights in our study of the Minor Prophets. An oracle is a word from God given to a man that he proclaims to others. False religions had their oracles as well, their truths. And it is said that many of the truths from many false religions and many of these, um, if you will, devil worshipers, those truths were given through theurgy. Satanically manipulated stone and wood that spoke, which you can imagine would boggle the mind and cause many to follow it. I don't want to be unkind. I'll say some things that are maybe, you know, you know I'm careful but direct. Uh, 
Today we still see a form of theurgy in different kinds of religions around the world where different, even Christian so-called groups will say, hey, there's this shine, the shrine, and this statue shed a tear. You follow me? And over here, this wood contorted shape into a cross. And I've been um, to some places, cathedrals, where those are greatly venerated, where theurgy was practiced, and things happened. And to this day, people venerate and worship. And God's making a point here, and I'll make it to you, these things are not from God. These are powers that ought not be messed with, and they, they come from Satan. This watershed moment of fealty to the Antichrist probably comes again in connection with the abomination of desolation, this image happening. It's the time when the state and the church combine, which, oh, I have some thoughts there. It's not a good thing. And don't confuse the two. And we have a higher allegiance always to Christ. And I'll save my thoughts for another sermon. It's dangerous. At the same time, to demarcate his followers, to make it more efficient and easy for the Antichrist followers to be known and for Christians to be um, more obvious, the followers of the Antichrist will receive a mark. And the Bible tells us that this mark will be either in the right hand, in the forehead. The word mark means a brand, tattoo, some kind of visible mark indicating and identifying their loyalty to Christ. Once again, a parody of baptism. When we are saved, it, it may not be as big a deal as it used to be, but when we are baptized, it is, that is our mark. That's when we are identifying with Christ. That's when we are going down with His death in, in picture and type and being resurrected. We don't receive a mark in the hand or the forehead, but baptism is a kind of that identification for us. Again, a parody. These people will receive a mark of some kind. What that mark is, I don't know. The word literally means tattoo or brand. That seems to be uh, what makes the most sense to me specifically. It'll be a visible identification. And so we, we, we see all these things happening. God, the Spirit, and Jesus, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, playing out these multiple types of, of parody for us. Now, let me say something to you, okay? Speculation is great concerning what this mark is and how it will be received. It has spawned some fear among contemporary Christians that we could unknowingly receive it, <clears throat> that the mark could be digital or associated with credit and or cards, that it could be a chip implanted uh, into us. Can I, can I just tell you, that is bringing contemporary thinking into an ancient text, and it's just wrongheaded. Um, I'm sure maybe they thought there was something else in the 18th and the 17th and the 16th century. Um, the Bible tends to transcend time. It's, you're probably safe. It's probably not your, uh, it's probably not in your, your billfold right now in a credit card. It's not your social security number. And it's not in your COVID shot. 
And I've heard all those. That's not, that's not a pro or con for that. I've, just, I've heard all these silly things said. Here it is. You will decide whether you get it or not. It's not going to slip up on you. It's going to be a moment of life and death for you, and you're going you're to decide whether you want it or not. Okay? So let's not worry about that stuff. Are we setting up a system for that? Maybe, possibly, I don't know. But it doesn't take much of a sophisticated digital system to put a brand on my hand. And again, a parody of what's happening with God is he had marked and branded the 144,000 Jews who were saved during this time. It's just, it's just all a parody. But the consequences of receiving this will be dire. Without, the, without receiving whatever the mark is, you will be basically economically ostracized. You can't buy. You can't sell. Which means in time, you can't live. If they can't find you and kill you, they will starve you to death for those who would be in hiding. It is a devastating moment. The text concludes with the most speculated meaning of a singular verse, maybe the entirety of the Bible, where it says, Now here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count or calculate the number of the beast. For the number of man, six, which by the way, man was created on the sixth day. Six, six, six is the multiplicity of man or of the depravity of the evil man. It's just like six, six, six is associated with, with man, bad man, really bad man. Okay? <laughs> now, this call to understand is probably meant for the audience of that day. Okay? You don't want to be alive here. Okay? So, it has some meaning to us, but we want to go up in the rapture. Okay, just want to make sure. So, don't get overly fascinated by things a little bit esoteric for our time. But it, it's here, so we're going to consider it. And the Bible says to calculate this, it's the number of man, 666. And, and, and by the way, it's, it's not written that way in the Hebrew. It's a triangular number that's said in Hebrew that's been translated and all kinds of things. But the gist of it is 666. It's a call to understand that for those who live in that day, that this understanding that will help you from being deceived. That's what the whole chapter is about. The false prophet deluding, 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 miracle, 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 statues speaking, fire from heaven from the false prophet. And you're going, what's happening? There's these two crazy guys over here preaching, telling me to do one thing. This false prophet over here telling me to do another thing. There's, there's, there's fire falling from heaven. There's, there's this stuff from Satan. What's true? You with me? Contextually? Contextually, you get it? And so he says, those who have wisdom will calculate the number. It'll be the, it'll be the number that's a man. So it's a name that's a number, and a number that is a name that, if you know, can help you sort out the confusion of the time. Now, this bit of knowledge may keep these people from being overly tempted to take the mark, which, by the way, will be a sore temptation if you can't eat or drink or if you're going to die. In other words, it's a way of keeping you from compromising with the beast. Just for a few of you, just a little. Gematria is a literary and numerical device that assigned letters and phrases with numerical value. You with me? Amen. Alpha, Delta, Beta. These letters in, in Latin, but also in Greek, specifically in Hebrew, 
their alphabet had numerical expression. So for those who were cunning and, you know, could do this, could spell words and write numbers and then write numbers meaning a name. Gematria is what it's called. It was very, it's a very, very common ancient practice that the Hebrews practiced as well as the Romans, the Greeks, and other ancient cultures. And it was what we call an alphanumeric expression or alpha letter number cipher or code. For those who like codes, it was an alphanumeric code. You ever did that as a kid? Did letters and numbers? Yeah, okay, we all know what that's about. You were doing geometry and didn't know it. In the text, John's audience, speaking to the tribulation saints, were told to calculate or count that number using geometria. And that the name of the beast somehow would be associated with the numerical value 666. Okay, lots of fascination here. You know I'm not a big fan of this stuff, but it's in the text. Let me say to you, I'm not sure we have the cipher to decode this anyway today. It may be lost. But, but it, it, it's obvious it'll be present to those who want it during the days of the tribulation. They'll have, they'll, they'll, someone will figure this out. The Jews' calculus here is different than the Romans, different than it was, um, again, Latin, Greek. In translation, things get confusing. But I can assume that during the day of tribulation, the saints will possess the calculus to decipher this code of 666. For us, speculating isn't necessarily productive. I would say it's a, a bit of a waste of time. It can become a distraction to more important Christian duties like witnessing, serving, you know, doing things we should be, that we know to do. The, the, the futility of gematria is in its fruit. For over the years, gematria, geometric formulas have been used to calculate and suggest, suggest that Adolf Hitler was the Antichrist. And that Harry Kissinger was the Antichrist. You guys remember that one? This one really disappointed me that Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist. That Rasputin was the Antichrist. And that Mikhail Gorbachev, with his birthmark, was the Antichrist. Some of you guys are too young for that, but in my day there was lots of Antichrist. It's been calculated that Judas was the Antichrist, who will be the Antichrist. And half a dozen popes have been assigned the number as well. Now, the Catholic Church, to be fair, um, there's some confusing ties here with Rome, and it has had many abuses um, and persecutions of the true gospel for centuries that have led many uh, to have some questions about that, and then the cultic fascination with, you know, theurgic items and abuse of power, and their proximity to the gospel, but often denying it, you know, makes that candidate the source of their speculation. There's been long speculation that this will arise, the Antichrist and the beast could rise out of a Christian environment. Um, Again, I think discussing that specifically is pointless, um, but I will offer this, okay? I studied, I'll offer this. Historically, one name above all others has been found the sum of gematria over and over and over throughout the centuries. And it's been done multiple ways with different e equations, and one name has historic weight. I'm not telling you that's the name, I'm telling you one name over the centuries has had historic weight. And that name, Reads like this, Nero Caesar. Nero 
Caesar. This was the man who led the first and most brutal state assault and campaign against early Christianity. Is the worst man who's ever lived in that regard. You with me? This is a man who put Christians on the stake. And you got to understand, John's writing to an audience that's not tribulationary, tribulationary primarily. It's a contemporary audience of people living under the, the dictatorial, brutal rulership of Rome. They're being oppressed by a state government. You, you following me? They thought they were living through the tribulation. Seriously, they, they did. And they understood. They, they remember the short history, which was just years, back to Nero. Domitian was probably the emperor at the writing of this, but they remember Nero and his cruelties against God's people and how he, he destroyed Christians. It's, it simply could just be saying this, is that the Antichrist to, to come will be of the spirit, the philosophy, and the attitude of Nero Caesar. In other words, we're talking about the revived Roman Empire, the one world government, a lot of associations with Rome, and the man who will take over the lead of all this, the Antichrist, and his false prophet, will probably have the same attitude, the same intent, the same inclination as Nero Caesar did. If that's true or not, I don't know. Personally, I don't care. But it's there, okay? It's there, and you can process that how you would like to, but there's significant study to that point. Now, there's many associations here. Nero was the sixth, the sixth emperor of Rome. He was the most wicked, most vile, most hated of Christians, and he hated Christians. In his history note, Nero killed himself, by the way, at the age of 30. He, he, he got so crazy. Remember, he burned um, Rome and then blamed the Christians. He made himself a state criminal in time because he got so crazy, even with his own people, that they ran him out of the city and then he committed suicide. His body was supposedly never found. So a cult was built around Caesar Nero that he would come back again. And they actually believed, many people claimed in the two years that they were Caesar Nero, that they were Caesar Nero, or Nero Caesar. And of course, it's always proven false. But in the Christian mind, there's this fear, is this guy going to come back? And John's saying, a guy like him is coming back one day. And I think that's the intent here. N not more specific than that. Some have run with that farther than I, I would. But I'm letting you know that is out there. There's someone who will be a state villain, religious leader, who will blend the two together, um, could come back and do great damage. And I'm going to end speculation there. The point was this. One day, a joint political religious persecution is coming for the followers of Christ. It will be so severe that unless you pledge loyalty to it, you will die. You will be deprived of any ability to buy or sell. You will instead be starved to death. But despite this temptation to compromise for food and life, even in the midst of, of seeing a very charismatic, persuasive, miraculous signs and wonders, you need to realize that all that is not heavenly, but rather it is earthly, it is from man, it is the spirit of 666, and it is to be avoided. It's better for you to die with courage. Right. And to live with courage. It's a call to say the Antichrist can't be trusted, that he cannot be worshipped. He is just a man, and he is an evil no matter how wondrous he looks. He is of the spirit of a man like Nero. 
He will lead a one world government and a state religion. And you, look up here at me, I'm almost done. You are not to compromise with it. Die with courage. Live without compromise. Okay, now that's an application we can make today. I don't know that you and I are going to be called to die with courage in a, in a, in a means of persecution. But I am telling you, you have the same responsibility to live without compromise. You are not to compromise with the world, with the world systems, with its values, with its priorities, with its distractions. You are not to make what the world loves what you love. We have to first and foremost keep in our mind this principle, Mark 8, 36, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world, even the ability to save his life with food and water, but to lose your soul? Death, a courageous death in Christ is a better alternative to that. There's no profit in it at all. Today, we have to make sure that we're not selling out our soul to the world. That we're not making this inequitable trade in competing and embracing the world's values. Listen, humanity is innately religious. We are made to worship. And there will be a temptation for those people, instead of God, that they will set their eyes on the Antichrist and for us today, the things of the world. Compromising faith for tangible assets has always been a temptation for God's people. Take your Bibles from the first John chapter two, just a few pages to the left, and I'm almost done. And if not, I'll be done. You know this text, first John chapter two, verse fifteen, love not the world into the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Why? Because the world is of the spirit of 666. For all those in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And this would be words that would be so meaningful. The tribulation of saints could be for us. And the world will pass away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Little children, it is the last time. In John's mind, these days were coming. As you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, those who oppose Christ, whereby we know that is at the last time. And John you know, implores them not to follow the Spirit. And I, I'm imploring you, don't follow the love of the world. Don't compromise with it. It's a whole a series of sermons about what that means. But compromise means to come in agreement with we cannot agree with the world system and its values. It means to adopt a lower standard for the sake of agreement. You may be able to do that in some areas of life, but you can't do it with the truth of Christ. We can't adopt a lower standard, a lower truth, just so you and I can get along without persecution in this present world. Let me ask you this question. What is competing for your loyalties in the present? It's far less than life and food and water. What competes for your time? What competes for your tithe dollars? What competes for your service? 
What competes for your real commitment? When choices, hard choices have to be made, what wins? Your time in church or your time somewhere else? You offering the plate or on the car payment? Look at me. You're, you're over-spiritualizing that. I am not. I'm not saying the same as life and death. I'm saying this is far less than that. We want to think that we'll give our lives, but we won't give our money. You want to think that we'll make this great stand, but you won't go serve in the nursery. You're deceived. I'm not being unkind. I'm just telling you that's deceptive thinking. It's the very thing Daniel's talking about. Well, one day I'll, I'll get there. If, if you won't work there now, you're not going to get there then. I'm not saying this is, this is for us. I'm saying, but we could live in very perilous times and choices might have to be made that actually affect your economic paycheck. I'm telling you, the spirit of 666 and compromise is here. We've got to consider how easily compromise can come. I, I, I'm playing on these social things because they're contemporary. I'm not making a political statement. I just want you to get the idea. This is how easy it is for us to go to following God to not following God. Since 2020, since 2020, in America, church attendance, faithful church attendance, this is extraordinary in your lifetime. Since 2020 today, church attendance has dropped 45%. Tens of thousands of churches have closed its doors in the last two years. Some recovering, majority are not. Okay, I'm not being judgmental, but something knocked out 45% of church attenders. And it was a concern, legitimate in many ways, for safety, but it's over. But 45% of people still stay away. One in five churches, one in five, today have reached their pre-2020 church attendance. Only one in five. Eight and ten today have half their attendance. Now, I want you to get the parallel. COVID knocked out half of Americans at a church. What are you going to do when you can't buy or sell? What are you going to do when someone says, forfeit your life or take the mark? And I'm, I'm talking about for the Christians who are here, but you get the application. Well, I don't like that. Well, I know you don't like it. That's why you don't like it. Because it's hard. But you don't understand. Oh, I do. I lost people that I loved to COVID. We followed protocols here. We were safe. It's time to come to church. I, I could go on with that. Let me go backwards in time. The Holocaust. You may not know this or... or study this, 90-something percent of Germans identified as Christian pre-World War II. 
90-something percent identified as Christian. Now, that's a broad spectrum of Christianity, but they identified as Christians. And when a charismatic, problem-solving, political figure rose to power and began to engage in unspeakable abuses, the German Christians fell silent. There were few exceptions. Silent. And there are almost none today because of one charismatic antichrist. That wouldn't be us. I don't know. I pray and hope not. But we've already witnessed something that's taken a lot of people out of church. And it's not the price that these people are paying. And I'm not being unkind, and I know the hurt. But I'm saying we got to be careful. Because the spirit of compromise, they're going to believe a lie. What makes you think we're, we're, we're any different? God help us to be true to Christ. Let me ask you to stand.